Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and it is The Stacks Book Club Day. We are discussing I Live a Life Like Yours by Jan Gru. The book is a memoir about Gru's life in Norway as a disabled man and a wheelchair user. We're joined by Tessa Miller of What Doesn't Kill You to discuss the book, the language of chronic illness and disability, the importance of community, accessibility, and the question of likability, plus a lot more. Be sure to listen through to the end of the episode to find out what our March book club pick will be. If you like The Stacks and want more of it, please head to patreon.com slash The Stacks to join The Stacks Pack. You'll get perks like bonus episodes, virtual book clubs, discounts and merch, and shout outs on the show. And speaking of shout outs, I want to say a huge thank you to some of our newest members of the Stacks Pack. Ellen O'Neill, Angelique Stewart, Claire Martinez, Lori Barber, E. Hoffman, Taylor Moore, Mandy Mobley, Matilda Dracula, Tamar Sella, and Faduma Ali. Thank you all so much for putting your money behind the work of this show. This is an independent podcast, so there would be no The Stacks without The Stacks Pack. To join, head to patreon.com slash The Stacks. And now it's time for the Saks Book Club of I Live a Life Like Yours by Jan Gru with our guest, Tessa Miller. All right, everybody, we are back. It is the Stacks Book Club Day, and we are discussing I Live a Life Like Yours, a memoir by Jan Gru. And we have brought back the wonderful Tessa Miller. Tessa, welcome back. Hi, everybody. I'm so excited to talk about this. I've been doing this show for four, almost five years, and I do a book club episode all the time, and I always forget to explain what the book is in the beginning, and then I get like 30 minutes in. So I'm going to remember to do that right now. It's one of my New Year's resolutions is to explain the book. Um, okay, so I Live a Life Like Yours is a memoir by Jan Gru, who is we have to get into a lot of this, but basically it's his memoir about his life. He was diagnosed with spinal muscular atrophy at a young age, but then we sort of find out that maybe that's not his diagnosis later in the book. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of his experience as a person living with disability. Um, He is Norwegian. He lives in Norway, though he does travel a bunch of places throughout the book. So we kind of get that perspective, but it's really just his memoir about living with his disability. Mm-hmm. I feel like I nailed that. Yeah, uh, very. That's that's. It's a very straightforward book. Yeah, there's not and a so, lot extra. 
uh, yeah. to explain. Um, and there may or may not be spoilers in this book, though I really don't – I don't feel like there's anything to spoil. So if you haven't read the book, that's okay. I think you're safe. Yeah, um, I think you're safe too. Yeah. Okay. What did you think of the book? That's where we always start. Yeah. Well, my main feeling and takeaway was that Jan presents this idea throughout the book of – and I think the title of the book gets at this. He has this dual gaze mm-hmm. that's kind of been on him. So he talks about the clinical gaze or the institutional gaze. And how does he reconcile that with just his experience as a quote unquote normal child within his family? Right. And as as he grows up and becomes an academic, and he also writes a lot about falling in love with his now wife. Like, how do you join this sort of external self where people are looking at you in this clinical setting with all of these feelings of yourself on the inside and within your family? I thought he wrote about that very clearly and well. Okay. So here's what I thought about the book. I was very mixed on the book because Mm -hmm. I felt like part of what he did was really keep the reader at a distance from his Mm. own personal emotional place. And while he talks a lot about like the clinical, the way that like the institutions wrote about him and to him and his family, I sort of felt like he did a similar thing to us as his reader where he Mm. gave us a little bit of information about him or like a little bit of his thoughts, but because it was written in sort of this like vignette ish style mm-hmm. like these like little chunks I never felt yeah. like he let us in and that I think probably was a choice but I definitely felt kept at a distance I felt that too and I was wondering if if you because the book has been translated the book has and been I translated won- yeah I, I always wonder that when I read translated texts right if it would feel differently if I was reading it in the native language that he wrote in which yeah. is Norwegian but I, I felt that way too. And there were these moments where you would, he would let you in a little bit. Like mm-hmm. there's a little, there are these sections where he talks about shame and stigma. Yeah. But then it's immediately on to something else. You get like a little glimpse. Yeah. And I also wonder if that's just like a Norwegian. I wondered that too. Their lip kind of yeah. Thing. I, like I don't know enough <laughs> about Norwegians and Norway to know if that's like of, yeah. If that's a, you know, personality trait of, of the <laughs> right. culture at large. All I, my mom has had one Norwegian grandparent who I never oh. knew. I only know her in myth and family okay. legend. And I know that she was a very stoic, like I said, stiff upper lip lady. And so let's take that. Let's take yeah, your great grandma yeah. and cast that over all Norwegians. And I think we're good. Grandma. <laughs> Grandma Lottie. Perfect. But the other thing that I thought that this book did for me, which I do not think that Jan did this in the book, but it's what one of the things that I took from the book was it really made me think a lot about intersectionality. I don't think that he talked about intersectionality basically at all, all, but I kept thinking about it because of the omission. And so for me, it actually became a much more interesting and rich reading experience because I kept being like, well, this is his experience, but how would a black disabled woman or like how would a fat, you know, Korean mm-hmm. disabled person who, you know, who's come to America? Like I, I kept thinking 
about these other people that aren't in the book. And I think like overall, I generally found this book to be medium. Like I think if mm-hmm. I'm just giving like a general grade, I would say just like medium. Yeah. A, a B minus. B yeah, minus. I think I would agree. I liked the, I think if you've never read a book by a wheelchair user and mm-hmm. you want, I think some of the best scenes in this book and that made me like feel the most were just these the issues of inaccessible spaces that he writes about. So I thought that that, that part was probably yes. what kind of like moved me the most because I am chronically ill, but I don't have to use mobility aids. And I mean, I have used them when I've been very sick and hospitalized, but like I don't have to use them in my day-to-day life. Right. And so I think that that experience in itself is something that's important in this book. But I finished it and I felt a little lukewarm just because I think you captured it when you said that you wish he had let us in a little more. Yeah. There's very much a distance between the reader and the author in this book. And I was left wanting more in this book. Part of me wonders though, like I think as a person who is not disabled, who is Mm -hmm. not chronically ill, who has been very, very lucky so far in life to be healthy in pretty much every single way, Mm -hmm. which is like, you know, such a blessing. I think that my lens is not super honed in to the experiences Mm -hmm. of people who are going through. And like, I think that I am certainly ableist in a lot of ways. I mean, I I know that I am. I'm like I'm not even hedging. I know that I am. Everybody of is. I mean, even right. Every I think everybody is. And he, yeah, and he gets at that in the book. Yeah, right. But I think one of the things that I kept, well, I don't know how to say this. I guess, but what I was struggling with slash, I think I'm I'm giving him credit for doing, but I don't know if he did it or if it was just me. Is that I kept thinking like, oh. I think like with the title, I live a life like yours. He's trying to put his life in relationship to the lives of the non-disabled, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's, that's who the yours is, Mm -hmm. I think for the most part. And I felt like I did connect my life to his story a lot, but I did not Mm -hmm. feel connected to him. And I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if as a person who is chronically ill, who just wrote a book and you've read books by other chronically ill people Mm -hmm. and you have talked to other chronically ill authors and all of these things, do you feel like there's a push from publishing to make books that you have to be super emotionally connected? And is it possible that Mm -hmm. he was pushing back against that? Like, you need to tell us everything about your life. You need to dive into every detail of how it feels and what it looks like and what it smells like and all of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there is pressure both in, and I've experienced this in journalism and in book publishing, where like, they want your war stories. They really want you to like spill your guts and maybe you're right. Maybe he is. That's a that's an interesting lens to see this through. Is that maybe like you don't have to to tell everything and really like cut yourself open metaphorically to right. to write something that kind of matters. I guess for lack of a better word, I think that that is that's a really interesting discussion that. I've seen less of that discussion in like the chronic illness and disability community and more of that discussion when we talk about like sexual harassment and sexual Mm -hmm. assault Mm -hmm. and how 
women, and I felt this way too, or anyone who's been uh, harassed or assaulted, it's like, we're sick of, you know, having to show our insides to the internet to get people to believe us. And yeah, maybe there was some purposeful sort of restraint on his part, because he never really gets super detailed about like specific trauma, right? you know, or he references his body a lot, but he doesn't tell us a lot about what his body does. He talks about the form that his body takes and the shapes and, but, you know, we don't hear much about his experiences in hospitals or, you know, various health institutions that he's been in since childhood. And we don't hear about, he references, like this was one part of the book where I thought that maybe he was going to let us in a little bit. And that's where he mentions like his first sexual experience, Mm. but then he doesn't tell us anything about it. He just like says it in passing and then doesn't say anything. And so it makes me think that those have to be conscious choices, you know, to not let us in to those kind of, you know, gory, maybe scenes. I wonder also, cause like there's a part, I can't remember. It's later in the book where he's like, there's certain words that I chose not to use in this book. And to me, Mm -hmm. I mean, the one that popped into my mind is he doesn't use disabled. It's not in the book at Mm -hmm. all. And I thought Mm -hmm. that was really an interesting choice, especially because I follow you on social media, no surprise. And you recently, I think yesterday had a thing that was like disabled is not a bad word. Mm -hmm. And, And I thought that I found his choice not to use the word. And I have to assume that even in the translation, that's such a choice. Yeah. That like, it made me think about, you know, what he talks about and what we were just saying is like the internalized ableism. Ableism. And like, he talks a lot about it actually, about like the weakness and the disgust for his own weakness and weakness Mm -hmm. in other people. And I just, the, the not using of the word, I noticed it early Mm-hmm. Because, uh, you know, I'll be really open when I when I read books, I'm thinking about how are we going to talk about it on the show? And yeah, I was waiting for him to self-identify because I wasn't sure, you know, what he would say. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's fair to say that he is disabled, whether or not he would necessarily yeah. identify as that. And especially because he later sort of validates that assumption by saying, I'm choosing not to use this word. So I don't know if you had thoughts about that. Yeah, he uses wheelchair user wheelchair user. over and over and over again and i guess that's how he identifies himself but yeah he doesn't use disabled and i wonder again like i don't know if that's i don't know if it's a it's a translation thing i don't think that it is um, i think that would be I think a that crazy a translation thing. Yeah. yeah i think that I think would be that really a bold choice, choice by the translator yeah and i wonder like <laughs> I mean, he talks about this a, a little bit in the book, sort of like the culture around disability in his home country. Mm-hmm. And like people are just now, I feel like, at least in the States, which, you know, is where I'm based and is the frame of reference for all of my disability work. Disabled is just now kind of becoming a thing mm-hmm. that, people, especially non-disabled people are comfortable saying. Mm -hmm. And I think that social media has a big part of that in like, you know, people sharing and self-identifying and the community really being able to say, no, this is the language that we prefer. And this is something that I noticed in the book is that it seems like his 
community is all non-disabled. Yes. Like he doesn't seem to have a disabled community. At least he doesn't reference one in this book. And he talks about a little bit about not wanting to be. Yeah, he wants to distance himself from He's that. He's like, if and all it, of my yeah. friends and all the people around me are right. not disabled, then I am not a disabled person or whatever because yeah. I'm not surrounded by that. Right. Yeah, and he talks about um, like how the camp. He went to a camp. Yeah, he went yeah. to a camp for that part. Kids. I got really mad at that part when he was like, "I don't belong here." I was like, "You know what? You do. You yeah, do." He, he has a the he has like a a childhood girlfriend at this camp, and then just kind of like abandons Ghosts her. her. Yeah. yeah, I was like, "Yawn, <laughs> my guy, toxic masculinity." <laughs> yeah, because he doesn't want to have a disabled girlfriend. And she um, also, but she, he chose a disabled girlfriend who is not a wheelchair yeah, user. Right. Like yeah. she, cause he talks about like the hierarchy. The hierarchy. Yeah. She's at like the top of this hierarchy, she's even higher which is important than him. to him. And I thought that there would be some reflection on that, mm-hmm. like later in the book, like as he grew up, maybe he, you know, found a community of disabled people, but it really seems like he has very much tried to distance himself Mm -hmm. from any kind of community, which is like, it's just alien to me because that is so vital to Mm. my survival as a disabled person in America, especially. And it's something that I tell chronically ill people, like when they, you know, if they reach out to me or email me or whatever, like I'm always talking about like how you can find community and Mm. the disabled community is such a just rich community of people and I rely on them so much for so many things and so to read a book from someone who that's just completely absent from this text was like a little bit of a shock to me and also like makes me a little bit sad for him because there's like there's a quote about like community uh survival is a community event. Mm -hmm. But I think about that all the time because like that is so true. And I think we've seen that, especially during the pandemic, like with mutual aid groups and like the disabled community really becoming vocal for one another. And yeah, it just seemed a little, I mean, I don't think he's a lonely guy. Like it seems like he, you know, loves his family and finds a lot of um, fulfillment in like his academic work. But it just made me feel kind of lonely reading it. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. No, that makes so much you know, sense. If that makes sense. Okay. Wait, I have to ask you this about you. So in yeah. your book, you, in like the introduction, I believe you say that you're chronically ill, but you're not disabled, but just now you did identify as disabled. Is that something that you sort of go back and forth on? Or is that just something like language wise that is like they get conflated? Um, I don't know if I did I say that I'm chronically ill but not disabled or did I say some people identify as oh, chronically ill but not maybe disabled? Maybe that's what you said. I can't remember. I I just thought that I remembered you saying that, but I could be putting words in your mouth. So you tell me. <laughs> you haven't I really. haven't revisited the yeah. book because I just needed a little space from it. So uh, honestly, I, I don't remember what the language says, but I use them sort of interchangeably okay. for my own identification. When I first got sick, I used chronically ill pretty exclusively because I think I had this idea, which is something that a lot of people, I think, think 
is that like if you're disabled, you have to be in a wheelchair or you have right. to be using a mobility aid or it has to be this very visible disability, right. which is not true at all. But, you know, th- these are beliefs that exist even within the disabled community. Right. I think that uh, disabled has become more popular within the wider community. Um, wider? W-I-D-E-R? Yes. Okay. Sorry, yeah. I just want to be. I wasn't sure. Well, I don't know. Like yeah. sometimes the white community be doing things different than other people. So I wasn't this is sure. True. This is true. I wasn't sure if you were saying like white disabled no, no, people no. or something. Okay, in the no, wider. I, really, I think that. Um, yeah. No. 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 I. Uh, I think that it's become more popular as sort of a self-identifier because of that sense of community. Got it. And I think that there used to be this kind of weird dividing line between like chronically ill and disabled, but like legally under, you know, sort of the umbrella of the Americans with Disabilities Act, like chronically ill people now are disabled. Right. And I think that a lot of people, especially during COVID, like have started being more comfortable mm-hmm. identifying sort of as like, I don't know, pride or resistance or whatever mm-hmm. to the forces of ableism that are so strong during right. the pandemic right. to, to call themselves disabled sometimes for the first time. But I know a lot of people like who are chronically ill who won't call themselves disabled, which is fine. I don't think that there's there should be any pressure to call yourself something that you're not comfortable calling yourself. And then there are also people who like their their status of disability sometimes changes. Like, you know, sometimes they do need to use mobility aids and sometimes they don't. And so they may call themselves disabled sometimes and then not other times, which is like kind of under this umbrella of dynamic disability. Got it. So yeah, but the I think the takeaway though is that it's just like not a it's not a dirty word. Right. It's not offensive to call someone who's disabled disabled. Like it's much more offensive to call someone like differently abled or right. special needs or any of these infantilizing right. you know, euphemisms again that non-disabled people like for their own comfort when talking about disabled people. So yeah, to not see that term in a book that I think publishers and readers would label as a disability memoir. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting choice that I would like to ask him about. I also, I don't know that you will have an answer for this because I know this is also sort of a different but tangentially mm-hmm. related community. As far as folks who are terminally ill, mm-hmm. how does that, do you know how that sort of intersects with the chronically ill and the disabled? Because mm-hmm. I know obviously certain terminal illnesses could render someone disabled and at a certain point, obviously, terminal right. illnesses lead to death for people who aren't mm-hmm. familiar with the difference, whereas chronic illness is something that you live with for right. an undetermined amount of time. Some people have chronic illness for the rest yeah. of their life. Some people have are able to be cured from their chronic illness or change their lifestyle so that right. they don't have flare-ups or some combination of those things. Which is why the title of my book is what it is. Yes. <laughs> yeah, to distinguish you? it, it's like a, you know, kind of chronic illness literally it doesn't kill you by definition. Term- yeah. By definition versus terminal illness. Well, and sometimes, you know, like, especially people with, uh, certain cancers, like 
when they get diagnosed, there's the potential of it being terminal, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then maybe they go into remission and then it technically becomes chronic because there is the chance of the cancer coming back or coming back in a different place or whatever. And also a lot of people after they've had cancer deal with chronic health issues or disabilities after cancer treatment and that kind of thing. So yeah, I think about that kind of distinction a lot and how it's just like, it's just super murky and -hmm. it changes all the time too, you know, like depending on like, especially with cancers, a lot of, a lot of cancer uh, survivors are in like, you know, the chronic illness community. And that's either because they live with chronic issues now, or like I said, there's the chance of recurrence. And yeah, it there's a lot of like language that tries to define things that I feel like can't be super defined. And right. I just like wh- whoever wants to be in whatever. Right section of this community like you know like I wouldn't feel like it was appropriate for me to be in a support group for people with terminal illnesses for example because my experience is different than that and I wouldn't want to be in a space that wasn't for me right Um, right sort of like a theater it's like there's general admission (laughs) and you can come be there but like there's also the balcony where you have assigned seating like but you can change your seat and it's a very chill theater yeah exactly (laughs) there's space for everyone okay thank thank you for clarifying that for me I don't even know if I did clarify it because honestly it's something that isn't a hundred percent clear yeah. Well, I think that I was just, clarifying though. Yeah, just like just, knowing that it's a little bit more fluid than like def- these distinct yeah. categories. It's definitely more fluid. And I think that like, again, social media and the ability for disabled and chronically ill and terminally ill people to connect all in this one interweb space has sort of, you know, definitely shifted the boundaries of what all of that stuff means too. Yeah. Uh, Let's take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. 
If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1. And that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Okay, we're back. Um, One of the things that both you and Jan talk about in your book and also I think is like pivotal in a lot of um, cancer memoirs that I've read and other books by disabled authors is this diagnosis the moment of diagnosis. In both of your cases, you had incorrect diagnoses. You had right. a few. He talks about sort of one. One, right. One. Um, yeah. And he talks about when his diagno- when he was his father called him to be like, it's not it's not the thing that we thought it was mm-hmm. because you don't have the genetic marker. So in his case, the muscular atrophy, the right. spinal muscular atrophy, it's a genetic mm-hmm. disorder. Right. And, and so progressive it sounds like from it's progressive. the way that he wrote about it yeah right. and so now like my husband who is an OBGYN he actually I asked him about it when I got to the diagnosis also he doesn't mention the name of the diagnosis until page 72 no. <laughs> which I thought was I was I like what page that. am I on um until page 72 and then we find out you know 20 pages later that that's no longer his diagnosis but I right. asked my husband about it and now there's a genetic marker for it so when you get genetic tested mm-hmm. you can find out if you have a propensity for that so a lot mm-hmm. of I, I I and he talks about that like there's what does he say something about the mutation in the embryonic stages or something like that and right. so I found it really interesting because then he grieves he like says he starts sobbing when he finds out that this thing mm-hmm. that he thought was the thing that he had for his whole life is not the thing yeah and I know in your book you talk about being misdiagnosed a bunch in the beginning mm-hmm. that was one part of this book where I saw like a thread in my own experience and something that I see people have talked to me about their own experience with diagnosis many times in my work or support groups or wherever. And it seems like he, he had this combination of like grief because he had identified with this thing for so long. And also I think because the thing that they thought he had was progressive. I think that was kind of a big part of it was like, he was always expecting it to get worse Mm -hmm. somewhere down the road. And he makes this point of like, but like, I really wasn't getting worse. Like 
you know, I had another five years and another five years and another five years. And like, I was, nothing was changing, but he did definitely, you know, build his identity around this diagnosis. I mean, how could you not? He lived with it for 30 years. And then I think it was this mixture of grief and where I related to it was he also had relief that came with it. And maybe that relief for him was because it was no longer this progressive thing. Like now he knew that that wasn't his fate necessarily. And for me, it was just like when I got properly diagnosed, I think I mentioned this in the book. Like I think that people who are not chronically ill or disabled think that diagnosis is this really scary thing that happens. But most of the time it's kind of a gift because Mm -hmm. you can finally get treatment. And especially for people who have just gone through rounds and rounds of doctors. And I see this a lot with um, especially people who have endometriosis because Mm. it is particularly difficult to diagnose. And especially male doctors often will tell people with a certain set of reproductive organs that like, you know, it's all in their head or maybe they just have bad periods or whatever. Right, right that it's very, um, it's reassuring that your experience and your body like has been validated, you know, that you're not, you're not crazy. You haven't been, um, just imagining this pain that you've been living with. So getting a diagnosis is also, you know, necessary, like when it's in your paperwork, right for your health insurance. I don't know how it works anywhere else outside of the States, but you know, insurance is going to, they're not going to cover stuff unless you have this diagnosis written in your, in your history. So a lot of people like they know they have endometriosis, for example, for years and years and years. And then, but they can't get medication covered for it because like no one, no doctors have said that they actually have it. Right. So there is a there is a freedom. I think there's a sense of control maybe that comes back with a diagnosis because often without that you feel totally out of control, like just the not knowing. And I think having language for things and having a name for something can be empowering in a way. Yeah. So that was my that was my experience at least. When you got your earlier diagnoses that were not accurate, mm-hmm. did you know that they weren't right? Like, could you, did you feel like this doesn't sound like what I'm feeling or did you think that you had an answer? Yeah. Um, I definitely had a feeling like it wasn't right because, so there are two, basically two main forms of IBD, which I write about in the book. There's ulcerative colitis and there's Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis is really contained to your large intestine. And Crohn's disease affects your entire digestive system. And I was having symptoms outside of my colon, like I was getting, you know, sores in my Mm. mouth and pain higher up in my abdomen than just very low, which is where your large intestine is. And yeah, I just had kind of a feeling that it wasn't the right diagnosis. And also like the medication that they were giving me, which was more specific to ulcerative colitis, wasn't really working that well. Like I was still just constantly in a cycle of flare ups. So I think, I don't remember exactly how I wrote it in the book, but like 
the symptoms that I was having not matching up with that diagnosis was much scarier for me than finally getting one that was like, oh, okay, this actually makes sense. And then to start a medication, you know, which is still what I'm on now that actually works. Yeah. Yeah. Versus like all just like, you know, throwing shit at the wall to see what would stick. And how ignorant to all of this stuff were you? Like when you got your, when you started to have your symptoms and started to get sick, were you like, okay, I'm going to do my research and I could be ulcerative colitis or it could be Crohn's or did you go in and they were like, it's ulcerative colitis. And you're like, okay, great. And then you're like, this isn't working. And then you were waiting or were you sitting there waiting being like, can someone just say fucking Crohn's so I can get some drugs over here? Yeah, no, I was pretty ignorant to all of it. And I, I think about this sometimes like before, Four, I think it was maybe two years before I got diagnosed with IBD. One of my friends who I grew up with, um, her younger sister got diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. And I remember when she told us that like her sister had been diagnosed with UC, I just was like, okay, like what, I don't know what that means. Like, right. you know, I didn't, I had no real re- frame of reference for that. And Yeah. So I was very ignorant before I was diagnosed. And then it was, I was much more of a passive patient when I first got diagnosed too. Whereas now I'm just like, you know, I feel like a professional, but I was, uh, I was very passive in how I approached doctors and the whole healthcare industry because, um, I thought that, you know, they always knew best. And I wasn't supposed to question that. I didn't know how to, you know, um, be more assertive in my role as a patient. And so, like you said, it was a lot of just like, can someone please just fix this? Like I had read so much about IBD after I was diagnosed that I definitely had a feeling, but I also like, I didn't want to be like that Google patient who comes in and is like, you know, WebMD says that I have this because <laughs> right. I wanted them to still take me seriously. It's this very delicate, like, yeah. you know, like balance of how you approach your doctors and it's not something that you're instantly good at at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was a lot of waiting around being like, can somebody give me some medication that actually works here, please? Yeah. I feel like part of what you're talking about a little bit and what he talks about in the book is when he talks, he talks about this with his wheelchair, where he's like, for everyone who doesn't have a wheelchair, it's just a wheelchair. But for people who are wheelchair users, you know, there's all these different versions. And he compares it to um, little kids who every time they see a four legged animal, they say woof. Until they right. recognize the different animals. But then if you go back and ask them, once they know the different animals, what each thing is, they won't be able to tell you which was a wolf and which was, mm-hmm. you know, and like, and that's how he compares his understanding of wheelchairs. Like before he knew a lot about wheelchairs, it was just a wheelchair. And now it's like he can tell every different little, and I thought yeah. that was really interesting because it's sort of that, like, we don't know what we don't know. Yeah. And we only understand things that we've like spent time trying to understand. And right. it sort of sounds like that's what you're saying with uh, IBD. Yeah. Well, and with this book too, like, like I said, I'm not a wheelchair user. Yeah. So this is, uh, and I think he makes, he makes a point in there somewhere. I remember highlighting too about that movie, The Sessions. Did you ever see, I think I saw it years ago, but I don't really remember it, uh, about a guy who had polio as a child 
and ends oh, up. Oh, the guy he talks disabled. about in the book, right. Mark, Mark yeah. O'Brien or something. Yeah, that Mark guy? O'Brien. I think that's yeah. his name. Yeah. And he hires a sexual surrogate. Um, mm-hmm. And he talks about how, you know, that movie was nominated for Oscars and kind of presented as this universal experience. And he's like, like, I'm also disabled, but like, I don't have the same experience right. as Mark O'Brien. Like, and I thought that was a nice point about, um, you know, sometimes I think that there is power in the in the collective right. term disabled. And also sometimes I think that like, you know, the nuance and stuff gets lost of people's very individual experiences. And even people who have the same diagnosis can have two completely different experiences. Well, we see that a lot, like not to conflate these things, but I know, you know, in the history of the uh, Asian American like rights movement, that there was this push to unify Asian countries so that Mm -hmm. they could have like power. But then it also becomes this thing that's like, okay, but a person from Manila is going to have a really different experience than a person from Japan, than a person from Sri Lanka, than a per you know, and like Mm -hmm. within all of those countries and all of those places, like there are super different experiences and hierarchies and and colorism and and class things. And it's like, sure, we are all Asian American, but like that is not the same. And I think, I mean, I, I talked about intersectionality earlier and I know that, you know, ability different disabilities and and illnesses and things are not the same as race, obviously. Mm -hmm. But I've kept thinking about a lot of the things he was talking about, like talking about stigma, the collective and the community and talking about, you know, access and Mm -hmm. and all this stuff. And I kept thinking about all the ways that that race is sort of similarly experienced by individuals who are, as he says, quote unquote, marked, right? Like he's like talks about stigma. You have to have a physical marking of Mm -hmm. the stigma. And I thought that was really You could compare it to the section of the the hierarchy too, right? Like when you're talking about colorism and all of that kind of stuff, like that is such a, like such a mirror to race too. I think that you can definitely make that comparison. And like they're overlapping identities too. Like, you know, a black person's, a black disabled person's experience is going to be different than mine. Right. Well, right. That's what made me think about the intersectionality is I was like, this reminds me so much of race. And then I was like, and there are black disabled people. Yeah. You know, like, and I keep, because like so. missing from. Yes. So missing from the book. book. Yeah. I don't think that I can just like, be like, oh, he's Norwegian. Like I can just forgive this as like an oversight of. No, no, no. Of his. Absolutely not. Yeah. It's like, I feel like if white disabled writers are writing about disability and they're not talking about race and gender and class, then you're not doing your job as someone who's writing about this stuff. Like it just, it, it's, oversight isn't even the right word. Like, it's like, I don't have the, the language. It's like neglectful. But yeah, it's neglect. That's, that, that, no, that's what it is. Oversight makes it seem like a passive mistake. Right. But like neglect, he doesn't know better. Right. Yeah. But neglect is like an active thing. It's a, yeah. like an active choice. And um, yeah, I just like, I don't have a lot of empathy for those choices in no. a, published text. So 
it's it was it was so glaring that it made me the person who you know come to came to the book to like learn or whatever <laughs> like be like this is missing and like I shouldn't I when I have that experience when I'm reading a book and I have an experience of like this there's a glaring omission it is mm-hmm. very uncomfortable for me to continue reading like yeah. I, it's really really hard especially in a case like a book like this where I really don't know that much but mm-hmm. I know enough to know that you've got to talk yeah. and he like sort of thinly mentions like, and I was lucky or like, and mm-hmm. I am at this place in the hierarchy or whatever. But I'm like, listen, Jan, <laughs> what you spent time in California, you know, like you can't <laughs> just blame, you can't just blame it on Norway. I right. know that Norway is super fucking white, but you also had so like his family was so involved and yeah. I don't care if you're white, black, whatever, to have a family that was so involved in advocating for him from such a young age, mm-hmm. that alone is something that he should have talked about in relationship to in other people who don't have that. I, because yeah. that's a huge thing from everything right. I've read about disability, chronic illness, access to healthcare, the uh, incarceration, like all of these things, having a family who supports you and fights for you through institu- yeah. in, with institutions. Yeah. That's the difference between having a custom wheelchair, right? Like that's the difference from having the yeah. shoes. That's the difference from not having to go to a school only for disabled children. Right. All that doesn't just happen. I don't care yeah, where you, you are. The, the, the choice of the word lucky mm-hmm. is uh erasure it's it's dismissive right yeah. because it's like not only do you have socialized medicine which mm-hmm. you know is a absolute game changer but like mm-hmm. you said you have your family like he's talking about these boxes and boxes of paperwork from his childhood that his parents gave him about how like they would put in requests and then they would appeal and they would spend just endless hours you know trying to get him what he needed yeah, it's it's presented in this book without any context or reflection, really, yeah. on how that could have been completely different. And I think, again, that kind of goes back to this missing, the community that's missing in this mm-hmm. book. And like, you know, like when you're when you're in community, you see those like, like I said, there's the umbrella of disability and chronic illness, but then there's these very different experiences that people have. And one of those is people who have had advocates. Right. And he has these advocates who spent a lot of time and hours and just from birth for him. And yeah, there's not there's not really yeah. any reflection there of like this could this is this is not the typical case of like right. how this goes for or if it is, people. or if it is in Norway, then say yeah, that then too. Tell me that. Then say I that felt too. Like I didn't have, yeah, I felt like I didn't have any comparison to other disabled people in Norway either. Right. Like, is that does everybody get a custom wheelchair? Like, wow, that's you know, that's amazing. Or like, are there still these, you know, divides by class, especially like it yeah. seems, um, which yeah. he like kind of like dances around but never really talks about yeah um I think what's interesting what you're saying about community which I'd never really thought about it but sort of what I'm hearing from you and thinking about my own relationship to to the people that I'm community like other black women that I'm in community mm -hmm. with is that having community not only gives you a place to like 
vent or to learn about, you know, what's going on? Is it normal that this is happening? Have you experienced this? Whatever. But it also gives you perspective and, <laughs> right. and gives you a chance to, to see your own privilege, right? To see yeah, like, okay, I, was, I don't have this thinking. symptom. Right. I'm so, I'm so grateful. <laughs> like I'm really lucky. I'm able, yeah. I'm a wheelchair user who's able to walk. Like that's a great thing. Right. Well, and people in community too, like, especially if, if you're really honest with each other and, you know, you have, yeah, just the honesty and communication with one another is like, they'll often tell you if you're totally off base, which I think is something that's really important. Yeah. And there were definitely some moments in this book where I was kind of like, did any other disabled people like give you any feedback on this? Was there any conversation about like, I'm not saying that you need to have other readers of your work. Like I know some authors work very closely with just like their editor and themselves. And that's pretty much it. But I did feel like there were some moments in this book where like, he could have opened up discussion with Mm -hmm. other disabled Mm -hmm. people and, Mm -hmm. and probably come away with more perspective, like you're saying. Um, He only mentions, he mentions privilege, I think once in this book. And he says like, privilege can exist with vulnerability, which like, yeah, is true. But like, I wanted more self-awareness about that, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things um, that he talked about that really just stuck in my mind, and I don't think I'll ever be able to think about disability again without thinking about this was, and I know this isn't everyone's experience, but when he talked about how he cannot hurry, that mm-hmm. I mean, I and he, how he has to plan and like I am definitely a planner, but that's just a personality trait. It's not out of necessity. Mm-hmm. But thinking about all the times that I'm like, oh, shit, I have to hurry. Oh, crap. Like, I don't have time for this or whatever. And mm-hmm. like thinking about the ways that time changes for f- people at, when they are sick versus when they mm-hmm. are healthy or when they are disabled versus when they are able bodied. Like, mm-hmm. I just that really stuck with me. And then his experience is traveling and in the in the wheelchair and yeah, I don't know. What if is you, it he says? He says being being uh like treated like cargo. Or yes, something, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and it reminded me of um the recent death of Ingracia Figueroa, the woman who yeah. um had her chair her wheelchair broken by United Airlines right. and, and then, then she got bed sores. Yeah. And she ended up dying a few months later. And, you know, obviously there's a legal situation. So I allegedly it was because of the chair breaking. I'm only saying allegedly in case someone who cares listens. But but it just made me think about, you know, the thing as a person who is not disabled that I kept thinking about, which, you know, of course, is through my own lens, is all the ways that I don't have to worry about these things. Mm -hmm. I felt the same way, though, Tracy, like my experience as a non-wheelchair user and as someone who like I have to I do have to plan especially like I have to plan for the unexpected you know if symptoms come up whatever and if if my disease is active like obviously I have to know where bathrooms are and that kind of stuff but like I don't have to I don't have to plan I mean the way that he talks about planning it's like every Every movement movement. is planned for and that is a freedom that I have. Um, I don't have to, I have to plan, but I don't have to, you know, like I can still, uh, if, if like I need a bathroom, I can still run down the stairs to one or whatever, like, you know, you can still um, hurry. Yeah. I can still hurry. And, 
and often have to hurry and, you know, I'm able to do that. But, um, I just yeah. have never thought about hurrying as a privilege at all. Right. right. Like I just, it's like, to me, it's such a, it's such a pain when I'm in mm-hmm. a place where I have to hurry. I'm like, oh my God, I'm so frazzled. Yeah. I'm so I frustrated. Hate being yeah, yes. No, I hate being I rushed. And now I'm like, wow, I'm so lucky to right. be in a situation where if I need to speed things up, I can. Well, and you he know? also in the, in that same sort of section of the book too, he talked about when, I don't know if it was the first time he traveled with his now wife or if it was just one time where they were traveling when like things just did not really go as planned. And I think that's when he talks about like kind of being treated as cargo by the airline. But like he was sort of like used to that experience at that point in his life. Mm -hmm. He was in his thirties by then. Right. He was like resigned to it. Yeah. Right. But his wife was just like incensed by the whole thing. And he, you know, talked a little bit about how like rage, like, is just something that he can't really afford to feel all the time anymore right. because like right. it'll make him sick basically. Well, that like, reminded me of racism too. Yeah, I was like, I can right. relate to this as a black woman. <laughs> like, yeah. Like when people, yeah. when people are like, Oh, that was racist. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, of course. But like, I, I can't, I don't do have you, the energy. Do people send you like news articles yes. and stuff wanting you to get like outraged about they want to know my opinion they're like what do you think about this question mark yeah and I'm like I get that a lot yeah and I'm also like I've obviously already seen this thing Mm -hmm. you know I had to put up boundaries on my um, Instagram for the stacks because people were just driving me crazy and Mm -hmm. now when people send that I'm like will you please look at my boundaries stories or whatever because it's just too um, much I had to put a thing on my website like the email form Mm. to be like please don't send me like diets. Please don't send like <laughs> pseudoscience. Like oh, yeah. I couldn't, and people still sometimes bypass that and send me stuff, which at this point I just ignore. But I did go through a phase like right after the book came out where I just like wanted to reply to everyone who would yes. like send me shit like I that. Did that you go, did you go yes. through that when yes. the podcast the, first started? Yeah, because in the beginning I didn't have that many listeners. And so I was trying to engage and like build this community. Yep. And then what happened was that George Floyd was murdered and I got like 15,000 followers in like a month. And then all of a sudden there because were Because of your anti-racism book list. Because it was that list, when it went, it went that's, viral. Yeah, because I did one really early. Like mm-hmm. I was one of the first people. And so then all these people came and started following. And then, right. you know, I did an episode on white uh, fragility with uh, the lady mm-hmm. gang. And so I just mm-hmm. got an influx of white followers who were coming to like, quote unquote, learn, but also to-, to Listening and learning. They were showing me how smart <laughs> they were. And so I was still had this like mentality of like, oh, this is a community of readers and people who are curious and interested like I am. And I, I realized not quickly enough that it wasn't in as good of faith as um, I had thought it wasn't as I was engaging yeah. with it. And so then I started just like double hearting things. But I actually now gotten to the point where I just ignore things like for example, well, actually, yesterday, I sent a bitchy response. I was so proud of myself. Ooh, um, someone more. it was dumb. It was dumb. But t- my brother, like I posted this thing and then my brother commented, sent me a DM being oh, like, yeah, I, the Juliet Lewis versus yes, Christina Ricci. Christina Ricci. Okay. And, and my brother Which, was like, I don't back to that because I have thoughts. <laughs> 
<laughs> the answer is Christina Ricci, the end. Is, that's who I voted for. A thousand percent. But my brother sent me a message that was like, I don't know whom either of these people are. And then this person sent me a dissertation about all the things that Juliette Lewis had been in and then also wrote, and it looks like your brother doesn't know the difference between who and whom. So then I wrote back, because this is my brother. My brother. The only but person who's allowed brother. to like yes. roast your brother is you. It's me. But also like clearly... It's a joke. He's like, whom? Ooh, I don't know whom either of these hoops. women are. Yeah. But also, like, this is my brother. So I wrote back, I guess they don't teach humor in the grammar police, which I thought was very good. Did they I was say very anything? proud of myself. No. And all right. I think I might have blocked them right after anyways. Yeah, I just was the, like. I think that's the way to do it. I just I, I'm getting to the point between the pandemic and the racism and all the things where I'm just like, I don't, I don't have to be nice. I think people think that I'm nice because I mm -hmm. am like interested in books. And so I think that people assume that means <laughs> that like, you're like a nice quiet librarian type, but I'm really not. I'm actually like kind of an asshole. And yeah. so now I've just, I'm, I'm going to lean into it a little more because I'm tired of it. You should. And also, yeah. like you said, at this point in I'm gesturing yes. to the entire Gestures world. Gestures wildly. Like, also there's, a, I think that people still don't understand that there's like a big difference between being nice and being kind. Like, yeah. I think that I'm a kind person, but like, yeah. if you send me like some shitty message about how like vaccines made me sick, I'm not going to be nice. Like, yes. and yes. also I've gotten to the point where I ignore most of that stuff now, but um, especially when the book first came out and I was just starting to get like reader emails about it. Right, right. I would still like reply to everything and I just, I can't do it anymore because yeah. like you said, it just like, it, 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 it hurts you more than yeah. like, you know, and also like who, ha who has the time? Who like, has I was the thinking time? about that with the person who sent you some like dissertation about Juliette Lewis, like who yeah. has the time? Who has the time? And also, like, w the other weird thing that happens, and I'm sure that this has happened to you, too, is that people, um, like, they they read the book, and for you, like, they listen to the podcast, and then they get really familiar mm -hmm. with you, mm -hmm. where they think that you ca they can speak to you in a certain way, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> where sometimes I just want to, where sometimes I just want to write back, we're strangers, dot, yeah. dot, dot, like, yeah. take a... Yeah. Take, Take a, a deep breath over there. Here. Yeah. yeah, no, I have, all, I get all of it. And I think also a lot of it, just like being in someone's ear, they think mm -hmm. that like they know me. I hear that all the time. Like, oh, like I'll write something like, oh, I read that in your voice. Like they can, uh -huh. they hear me. And so yeah. they think that they know me because they, you know, it's like very intimate. Mm -hmm. having, and I feel that way about a lot of podcast hosts that I love. You know, like I've had a few yeah. on this show and I'm literally like, oh, my God, it's you, my friend. Yeah. Let's talk about this thing. <laughs> and then I'm like, I don't know you. I don't know you. I don't know you. I'm a yeah. big fan, but I don't know you. Right. So I get Which like I I'm very it's, sympathetic. It's simultaneously great and yeah. then also can get weird like real. Yeah, because it's such an honor, yeah. you know, like it's yeah. like such an honor that people listen and are interested in what I have to say and like come back right. week after week and all of that. Yeah. But sometimes I'm like also. I have boundaries and I'm a human being right. and I don't know you yeah. and, and you're coming at me in a way that I'm very uncomfortable with right. and like, or I just don't think it's funny. I don't think it's funny for you to grammar police my brother. Like it's not funny. <laughs> Get out of my DMs at like 10 o'clock on a Saturday. Like goodbye. Yeah. Okay. We're again running out of time, which is always my problem with this show. That's mine too. I mean, you know, it's unfortunate, but I, I sort of talked about this, but he talks about like the aim of the book is making space 
he mm. wanted to like make space and he talks about like his dream for the world and it's like got wide streets and like accessible buildings and all of these things and he can move around freely in this world and mm-hmm. I, you know he can I, he can hurry he can do whatever and I had two thoughts about sort of the aim of the book and then this dream world and one of them and he talks about having deep grief that this world doesn't exist for him and like one of the things that really hit me about that was like this world kind of does exist for me Mm. in this sense mm-hmm. like not talking about the ways that I'm hindered to move in the world but like physically the mm-hmm. world that he dreams of like the sh- I don't ever it's, feel like the yeah. street's too narrow I don't ever have I don't you know and like and there's an episode of the Ezra Klein show where Tressie McMillan Cottom is on and mm-hmm. they talk about how like at some point all of us will become disabled at mm-hmm. some point in our lives, right? Like right. or chronically ill or terminally ill or one of mm-hmm. or one of the things under this, you know, larger umbrella. Right. At, and it just depends on when it happens to you. Yeah. For most people, it's going to come with aging. Right. But, you know, with aging or with an accident everyone, or something right. down the line. Yeah. Or with COVID um, now. Or with COVID. Really like the main, you know, yeah. a big disabler at this yeah. point in history. Yeah, but I just kept thinking like, wow, his dream is like something that I get to live in. And it made me Mm -hmm. feel obviously extremely grateful and guilty too, because, you know, we all have issues. I think those feelings should always coexist a little bit. I think think you're right. But then the thing about making space in this book, that was really like irked me because I just feel like he might have made space for his story, but I don't think he made space broadly. Yeah. I don't. I, think, I didn't think about this book in relationship to the experiences of other disabled people because of him. Right. I thought about it sort of in spite of what he had written. Yeah, and, and it was a little like it was frustrating, but it also sort of made him human in a sense. Where I'm like, see, mm. you too are narrow minded, just like me. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, um, I was having this conversation with a friend like a couple months ago. And we were talking about uh, Madison Cawthorn, that terrible uh, representative from North Carolina. Um, I don't know them. He looks like a Hitler youth and he's in a wheelchair because he was in an accident as a teenager. Mm. Um, But he's, you know, a Trumpist. He's far right. He's he's just not a good person. Mm. And we were actually talking about how, like, it's kind of important for people to see that disabled people can still be bad people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I don't think that I'm I'm not equating Madison Cawthorn with Jan Gru because I don't think that Jan Gru is a bad person, but I think that like what you said about it kind of humanizes him in a yeah. way because like there are definitely some some unself-aware kind of selfish, you know, sentiments within this which um you know, I think it is, is important. It is. Yeah. I mean, like, we have, we know, all have it. We, we all have, have it. them. Yeah. And I think that sometimes disabled people get like, uh, the like angel treatment. Yeah. It's either infantilizing or like sainting them, yeah. like these un unblemished people and we're inspiring. And right. especially I think for people who are in wheelchairs, get that. Oh my gosh. They're the more. most inspiring people. Yeah. So inspiring. And, and some are. Know, yeah, yeah. But some are not. But like some are just yeah, like you, can, you know, regular degular like the rest of us. And you can be inspiring and also like kind of an asshole sometimes too. Like all of these dualities exist in all of us and like disabled people aren't any different. So I do think that that is an important point to make. And sometimes like in the bad guys, like also like Dan Crenshaw, who has, you know, his mm-hmm. eye patch and he has mm-hmm. the vis- vision impairment. Same thing. It's like 
sometimes, you know, you can be an inspiration and be a horrible person. Yeah. You know, like I'm sure that there are people who are inspired by Dan Crenshaw because he was like in the military or whatever. And a lot right. of people value value that type of service. And he was injured in, in the military, I'm pretty sure, but mm-hmm. I'm going to make that yeah, up. So but also he's a horrible, homophobic, transphobic, right. racist piece of shit. <laughs> Yeah. But, (laughs) you know, that kind of representation matters, too. Like, I think it all matters. You know, there's Candace Owens. She's not making black women look good to me, but like we need her, too. You know, and like I think as an exercise, as an exercise that I try to practice, you know, is like how can we love everybody? And I don't mean love Mm -hmm. in like the like. I love everybody because like I don't believe in that but like how can we practice like love and humility when we come to people who are who we think are wrong or bad or evil or vile and still you know love them for being part of our community or whatever that looks like um it's it's an impossible thing for me to do up to this point in my life but it's Mm -hmm. something that I aspire towards yeah um but again, it doesn't make me like Candace Owens at all and not call her horrible <laughs> names behind her back. But it is something that I'm like, okay, okay, okay. But also as a thought exercise. Yeah. We talked a lot about the title actually earlier in the book. I don't know if you had mm. any thoughts about the cover, but just the last thing. I think you have, you have the blue. It looks like this. Yeah. The blue and the red. It's like blue with like red lines that are sort of um, in chunks, but then they don't fully connect. They just connect at the corners, sort of disjointed mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, and it's sort of like a swivel shape. And it's a dark blue with like these red orange. And then the writing is in white for people who have not seen the book slash are listening <laughs> to a podcast describing. A <laughs> not my strongest skill set. Um, I didn't have like a visceral reaction to it. Like yeah. I do with some book covers, like we were talking about becoming abolitionists earlier yeah. and how like I had such a response to, to that image. Yeah, I thought it's maybe kind of, it could be a metaphor for like the shapes of bodies, you know, because mm, he talks kind of about like uh, the form that his body takes and, you know, how like his ankles are crooked. And I think he describes yeah. like his spine being bent and that kind of thing. But it could also be, you know, kind of a, vi- a visual representation of in accessible spaces, like because the lines have the breaks in them, like you can yeah. only you can get like so far yeah. and then like the road runs out if we're thinking of this as like, you know, a road or a sidewalk or whatever. But what did you think about it? I didn't think that it did much for me either. I think I should have said this earlier. So we picked this book for a very I picked this book for a Tessa sent me a bunch of books and I specifically picked this book for a few reasons. One of which was because the author was a man and we've done so many women's books on this show. And one of the things that I always wanted to do on the show was to make sure we read all sorts of different kinds of books. And in 2021, we only read um, two books by men, um, which, you know, I don't I'm not saying that. (laughs) I think it's fine. Like, I'm not saying that men are, you know, but I also wanted to be cognizant of that. Like that's something that I think about. And I also was interested in, you know, reading an author, a book that was translated and an author who's not from America and all of that stuff. That being said, I felt like this cover is like so purposefully, um, sort of like what's in the book. It like purposely holds you at a distance. You don't get a sense of like what's what's coming, what this means. I live a mm-hmm. life like yours. It could literally be about anything. We just, all we know is that perhaps in some way this person is different than mm-hmm. whoever the yours is to the author. But like there is really, it just says a memoir, you know, there's no subtitle, there's no a life 
with, you know, a life behind the diagnosis. There's not, there's mm-hmm. nothing. I looked up the original cover too. Uh-huh. Like I think it was published in hardback and it's, it's just white, white text on a black Interesting. Cover. Yeah, I was wondering if maybe it was yeah. it was different. Changed also, I noticed in his like in his author photo too. You can't see the wheelchair or anything. Right. Yeah. No, I I looked him up. It's it, mm-hmm. there's clearly a not clearly, but it feels like to me there's a sense from him that like he does not want to be defined by his wheelchair use or mm-hmm. or by his disability in any Mm -hmm. way and that like being like everyone else seems to be very important to him Mm -hmm. based on what we've read and like the pictures like if you google him there's very few pictures of him in the wheelchair right um there's a few with him like standing near it like giving Mm -hmm. some sort of a speech or something it looks like but Mm -hmm. um and i it just it's just a really interesting like I'm I'm actually really glad we did this book because it's sort of a different perspective on disability than i think than yeah. I think I was anticipating. And I, I think, it was for me too. And yeah. and I think for for your readers as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I do think it fits very nicely with your book just because your book mm. is so intimate and like you really do let us in. And I think that it's interesting to like read it and compare like as like a comparative lit moment of like these <laughs> two people who are under the same umbrella, you know, and obviously your diagnoses are very different. Right. There's so much difference, but just the way that you write about it. Two different diagnoses, two different approaches to writing to about talking it. about your bodies yeah. and your lives. I just, mm-hmm. I found it to be really interesting. And I think, I don't know that I would have appreciated his book as much if it weren't for your, for having read your book first, honestly, because I felt like I understood some things a little bit mm-hmm. differently and mm-hmm. like, cause you gave us much more context, which, you know, I'm always grateful for, yeah. but is there anything else we want to say about this before we get out of here? Mm, I don't know. I feel like we did. A, I feel like we covered a lot. I feel like we covered a lot. And hopefully, you know, we'll have more to think about once everybody else reads it too. Because yeah. I think that people are going to have feelings, many, many feelings about this book. Yeah, sure. I think so too. I think so too. And, you know, it it's, it's a good book. It's just, it left me wanting. Yeah. 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 I think the overall thing that we kept coming back to is just like the, the feeling of distance is very apparent while you read this. Yeah. Um, and I think that like people will, will see that and, and you kind of wait for that to shift and it kind of doesn't, which, you know, maybe like you said, was the strategy here. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Say. Well, everybody, thank you so much. Oh, make sure you listen to the end of the episode because we'll, you'll find out what our book club pick is for March. Very exciting. But Tessa, thank you so much for being here. Everyone, make sure you go out and get Tessa's book, What Doesn't Kill You. It is out in paperback now. Audiobook Yay. I already plugged, but go get the book. It's fantastic. <laughs> Tessa, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Tracy. This was such a fun way to spend the afternoon. Thank you so much. Yay. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, that does it for us today. Thank you all so much for listening and thank you to Tessa for being our guest. All right, it's time to announce our March book club pick and I am thrilled to tell you all it is time for our annual Toni Morrison read. We're doing it early this year and for our fifth book by Ms. Morrison, we are reading A Mercy, one of her later works from 2008. We'll be discussing the book on March 30th and you'll need to tune in next Wednesday to find out who our guest will be. If you love the show and want inside access to it, please head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the stacks pack. 
Make sure you're subscribed to the Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from the Stacks, follow us on social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram and at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Our editor is Christian Duenas, our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.